Kia ora everyone! Today I am thrilled to introduce you to two Kiwi legends working in the field of glaciology. Our first guest is none other than Professor Pat Langhorn. It all started at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland when Pat studied towards her undergraduate physics degree whilst being absolutely fascinated by the polar regions. In 1985, during her PhD on sea ice at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge, England, Pat was invited to take part in an Antarctic experiment, which brought her to New Zealand for the very first time. Since then, her work has involved over 20 visits to Antarctica and an extensive amount of published research on sea ice and ice shells. During the 2019 New Year Honours, Pat was awarded the New Zealand Antarctic Medal for her services to Antarctic science. It is such a privilege to have her here today. We are also joined by a familiar voice from Season 1, Dr Dan Price. Dan is an Antarctic Traverse expert, Edmund Hillary Fellow and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Canterbury. His research includes satellite remote sensing of polar regions, sea ice and crevasse detection. Dan really is a man of many talents. I can't wait for you to meet these two and learn all about ice in Antarctica. I guess my first question is prompting the key differences between sea ice, ice shelves and the ice sheet in Antarctica. So I guess this is kind of glaciology 101 in the Antarctic and I guess the best way to visualize it is to kind of imagine that the, the Antarctic is a, is a continent surrounded by ocean, um, pretty much centered around the South Pole. So imagine the bottom of the planet and the ice sheet is, is the ice that is out of the ocean that is centered around the South Pole. Um, and it's, it's a result of snowfall over millions and millions of years. The, the Antarctic is actually very dry, so it doesn't get a huge amount of snowfall, but it's just the time scales over which we're talking that this snow has accumulated. Um, and that snow eventually turns into ice. And because the Antarctic is so cold, that ice doesn't melt, that snow doesn't melt away and the ice can grow over, over millennia and millions of years. Once that massive, massive ice is there, it, it under its own weight starts to move down towards the coast. Um, and once it gets to the coast, the ice sheet, once it starts to float, is called an ice shelf. So ice sheet and ice shelf uh, have the same origins, I guess, but the ice sheet is grounded and the ice shelf is floating. And then we get out even further away from the pole and we get uh, what is called sea ice. And this is a completely different type of ice. This ice is formed from the ocean. So because the polar atmosphere gets so cold, this, the ocean surface freezes and that results in a sea ice cover, which covers the Southern Ocean. And that is uh, Pat's area of expertise. Yes, the sea ice is usually quite thin because it just freezes over a few months rather than the millennia that the ice sheet and ice shelves have had to form. So it's usually less than a couple of metres thick. So it forms in the winter and then mo most of it melts away in the summertime. Right. And it's salty, which the ice sheet and ice shelves are not. I see. So because you've got this salty ice and freshwater ice, is there quite a distinct way that, wow, I guess quite a distinct place in which you see them meet? There is. It's quite distinct. It's mostly distinct because they have quite different thicknesses. So sea ice is usually a couple of metres thick, up to a couple of metres thick, 
Whereas the ice shelf that's floating on the ocean that's come from the land might be hundreds of meters thick. So there's a, a step where you go from being on an ice shelf to being on the sea ice, you would have to jump down and you might need a parachute. Interesting. And does it feel different when you're walking on it? Like, is it, is it crunchier? Is it visibly different? Well, we might ask Dan about that one. I don't, I haven't walked on so many ice shelves as Dan <laughs> has. Um, so, so, so both of them typically will have a snow cover on the top of them. I guess it would take quite a trained eye if you were suddenly posted in the middle of either to work out where you were with no other reference. But typically with sea ice, I guess you're at the coast. Um, so you'll see uh, the Transantarctic Mountains and have some indication that there's something going on. But typically, done a bunch of work out in the middle of these ice shelves, um, principally the Ross ice shelf. And once you're in the interior of these areas, there really is absolutely nothing else. Um, it's kind of a powder field the size of, of Spain. So um, there really is nothing much going on. So th those are kind of the, the principal differences. But I guess walking along from personal experience, I'd say that the sea ice is probably a little more crunchy and hard with the snow. Right. And then on the ice shelf, things are pretty soft. You know, you can go right up to your knee in the snow. So there's a little difference. Really interesting. Yeah, it's um, what Dan says, it can be quite difficult to tell the difference between sea ice and ice shelves. I have myself driven a vehicle into a hole in the ice shelf called a crevasse when I thought I was on the sea ice. Oh, so wow. it's quite easy to mistake one for the other. So you mentioned briefly before these um, trends that we can observe in Antarctica from summer to winter with respect to the ice, more specifically the sea ice. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to grab the sea ice part. <laughs> in the summertime, there's very little sea ice around Antarctica. So if you were lucky enough to be up in a satellite or on a spaceship and look down on Antarctica, you would see a whiteness in the middle of a blue ocean and there would be hardly any sea ice around it. And if you stayed up in that spaceship for six months so that you looked down in the middle of winter, the whiteness would be twice as big as it is in the summertime because sea ice has frozen on the surface of the ocean. So every winter time, an area of ocean is covered by sea ice, and that area is about twice the area of Australia. Wow. So an area, twice the area of Australia, grows in the winter, and then between October and December, it all mostly all breaks up and disappears north and melts. And then every winter it will grow again, every summer it disappears again. When people talk about a trend, what they mean is if you look at the same time of year from one year to the next, how much has the area that's covered by ice changed? That's usually what they mean. And Dan, what about ice sheets and ice shells? Yeah, I guess, I guess <laughs> it's, it's quite a different picture when we look at the, the ice sheets and the ice shelves. Again, that's the glacial ice that is either on the land or come off the land. 
this much thicker ice uh, that we were talking about earlier. And from a, from a seasonal perspective, I guess there is limited change on, on the ice sheet. Um, but at the ice shelves in, in the summer, we can, especially on the Antarctic Peninsula, we can witness changes from the increasing temperature. And I guess that the, mo the more concerning trends related to the ice sheet and the ice shelf are sort of longer term than seasonal. So um, this is where the whole sea level rise question starts to come into play and how the warming atmosphere and ocean is influencing um, the destabilization of these ice shelves and ice sheets. Um, so that, that's kind of more the important question with those. Um, and, we, and, we, and we certainly don't see this huge seasonal change like with the cover of the sea ice. Um, and, and with those longer term changes, it's actually very concerning, um, particularly in parts of the West Antarctic, which is vulnerable, very vulnerable to warming. We're seeing quite colossal changes in, in particularly the ice shelves and how fast their grounding lines are retreating. I just, I remember you touched on the fact that the Ross Ice Shelf is roughly the size of Spain, which is pretty incredible. So with an area of ice that size, do we know much about what's going on underneath? Whether the ocean underneath is getting warmer or getting colder or where it's getting warmer and where it's getting colder, these are bigger questions and ones that I think we don't know much about yet. Is that true, Dan? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's arguably one of the most um, unexplored parts of the planet. Uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, I think there have maybe only been three drill holes or maybe a few more through the ice shelf, two most recently by the New Zealand Antarctic Program, um, which allows access to take measurements underneath the ice shelf, which is really what you want to get at. Because I guess the restriction is that it's this huge, hundreds of meter thick, boundary that you just can't access the ocean um, underneath. So we can't really find out anything underneath. We can, we can look at things on the surface of the ice shelf that are perhaps being influenced by what the ocean is doing underneath, but it's very tricky to get underneath it and study what's happening. But those changes are very important to how um, the ice shelf itself um, will change in the future. So that's a lot of work that the New Zealand Antarctic program is doing at the moment is, is trying to understand one, those, to go back in, in the past and look at how it's changed way back in the geological past and, and two, to look at how it's changing right now um, using um, oceanographic, oceanographic observations underneath the ice shelf. So we put instruments down those holes. Um, and a really interesting project last year was an American collaboration instrument called IceFin. It was a sort of three meter long torpedo shaped device that went down the hole, sort of 600 meters through the hole that was drilled and then exited into the ocean cavity underneath and took sort of the first high resolution video of this essentially alien environment, which had never really been imaged before. So that was pretty cool to see. So I guess outside of glaciology, it's, it's certainly not explored at all in terms of biology and what's actually happening underneath there is, is a pretty interesting place to be looking at. Yeah, definitely. It sounds really fascinating. And I guess the reason why I prompted with that question first is because I'm really interested in with respect to both of your guys' work, there's obviously fair climate change influencing air temperatures as well as sea temperatures and these big ice shelves can melt from underneath so I guess what do you guys think is the most important thing to focus our research efforts on as the climate changes with your guys work specifically and how you your knowledge I'm a bit biased with that <laughs> question the most important work happens to be the work that I'm doing right um, of course 
to me, I, I, I mean, it comes down to a question you might ask later, which is about sea ice thickness. I think it's pretty important to know about sea ice thickness because at the moment we know very little about sea ice thickness because it's very hard to measure remotely or unless you're standing on it and drilling a hole. It's pretty hard to measure remotely. And without knowing how thick the ice is, you might know from satellite what area the ice covers, but all the all our information about how much energy is tied up in that sea ice freezing melting process. In other words, all, all our knowledge about how much of the sun's energy is that gets used up in that freezing and melting process. In order to work out these energy balances, we need to know how thick it is because knowing the area it covers is not enough. So, I mean, it, because it could be covered in a bigger area, but spread more thinly, like, like you would spread marmite, right? You wouldn't spread a big dollop of marmite, or most people wouldn't, on, a, on one edge of a bread, you'd spread it out. And so your marmite would cover a bigger area than your jam might, because your jam, you might let the jam be thicker. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so I think it's pretty important to understand something about how thick sea ice is um, and to develop techniques for measuring sea ice thickness from the air and ultimately from satellite. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think Dan's very involved in. Yes. Like Pat says, you're going to get a biased answer from every scientist, I guess. And this could be a, a bit contentious now because... My background is in sea ice, um, and Pat was one of my supervisors for my PhD, but I'm kind of shifting over to what sea ice scientists would call the dark side, which is kind of land ice study, so the study of those ice sheet and ice shelves. So I, get, I guess, from my perspective, a very interesting question, and definitely from the sort of global scientific community about the Antarctic and what, what should be prioritized and what are very important questions, essentially, is the impact the Antarctic ice sheet melting will have on global sea level rise. Um, and that, up until quite recently, actually has been left out of a lot of the, what people will hear, the IPCC reports and these UN intergovernmental panel reports on climate change, simply because we haven't been able to measure it very accurately. And, and that's a field of science that's advancing very quickly. So I think that's something we'll see over, over the coming years and decades is an improvement of our ability to forecast how, um, like we've already briefly spoken about, how the warming ocean and the warming atmosphere is going to interfere with the current um, equilibrium state of the ice sheet and how, how that's going to change the, the rates of sea level rise. And of course, that's important for hundreds of millions of people around the world that live at the coastline. With, you know, climate change in mind, just like New Zealand has glaciers, there's glaciers in Antarctica. And one in particular that has been getting a lot of interest lately is the Thwaites Glacier. And I guess I just wanted to ask a couple of questions around why this is referred to as the Doomsday Glacier and what do you guys know and can, I guess, provide some knowledge around, around this question for us today? The Thwaites Glacier I, is... Uh one that has seen a lot of warming underneath. So the ice shelves there have got very warm water creeping up underneath them and causing much more rapid melting than in other areas of Antarctica, which means that 
if the ice shelf goes, then the glacier becomes uncorked. It's like pulling a cork out of a bottle and immediately the glacier itself will move forward much more rapidly. Ice shelves are just vulnerable to interacting with this relatively warmer ocean. Um, and the Thwaites Glacier is in the Western Antarctic. So the, the Antarctic is split into two areas, the East Antarctic and the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. And the West Antarctic Ice Sheet is an area of principal concern. And Thwaites is probably the glacier in the West Antarctic that has had the most attention on it um, because essentially the rate at which it is retreating. So the rate at which it is melting back towards the continent. And the whole area basically is an area of big concern, mainly to do with the land that is underneath the continent. So if, if, if listeners just go and search um, Antarctic bed topography or a thing called bed map, they'll be able to bring up a map of what the land underneath the Antarctic actually looks like. And what you'll see is that the West Antarctic is mostly an archipelago of islands, whereas the East Antarctic has a lot more land mass. So the ice is stable and up out of the ocean. In the West Antarctic, that's not the case at all. And it's close to interacting with the ocean, which is exactly what Pat was just getting at as to, as to why it's vulnerable. I guess it's been termed the doomsday glacier because it's pretty big. Um, and just alone itself, it will contribute uh, 65 centimeters to global sea level. So if, if the entire uh, glacier melted, the global sea level on average would rise by about 65 centimeters, which is obviously quite a lot, uh, particularly for some vulnerable regions. Um, the timeframes on that, again, like we were saying earlier, are, are very difficult to constrain, but we don't expect that to happen for centuries. But the rates over which that could happen in the short term could heavily influence um, sort of century scale change in sea level rise. And, and there are large error, error margins on those predictions. So there's a big international scientific effort on weights between the British and the American program to really try and constrain some of those numbers and get a, 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 better, a better grasp on how this glacier is going to impact global sea level. Interesting. And how about a little bit closer to home? Is there any in particular, like, glaciers experiencing the same thing? Obviously, to less of a, a degree, um, and will probably have less of an immediate impact, but maybe on the eastern side, closer to Scott Base? The Ross Ice Shelf is a cold-based ice shelf. One of the things about the West Antarctica um, is that there is, this comes right back to sea ice, of course, but um, is that there is not a very extensive sea ice cover and it's not thick on that part of Antarctica. And that means that the heat can enter the ocean much more efficiently than it would do if there was a thicker and more extensive sea ice cover there. The Ross Sea area has, I think, is, is a slightly safer place. Dan, do you have a comment? Yeah, I, I definitely agree, Pat. That seems to be what everything is suggesting, that that, the, that that sector of the Antarctic is certainly in the short term more stable. But I guess a longer term question of what a lot of the scientists trying to answer now is... Um, how does, how does that go as we project things forward, as we project things forward? Um, and that's what a lot of the sort of paleoclimate community is trying to establish is how has the Ross Ice Shelf responded to equal levels of warming in the past? Because um, I guess you can think of climate change as locking in all this heat now, but just the um, sort of inertia or stability of the ice sheets and ice shelves means they take a bit of time to respond. Um, so... 
say we stopped greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, the ice sheets would continue to respond for centuries to millennia to that warming that is now locked up in the atmosphere and the ocean. So that's exactly as Pat says. Currently, there doesn't seem to be um, any major cause for concern in the raw sea sector, but moving forward, um, there certainly could be. Yeah. And I guess it's also interesting, like, at what point are we going to reach a tipping point as well, where these changes are just going to accelerate and then all of a sudden, um, not only are we locked in, but we've also got things happening a lot faster than what we initially expected. I guess another question that has just popped in my head is what do you guys think is more of an immediate threat? Is it warming in the atmosphere or warming in the ocean in terms of, or a combination of both in terms of these sea ice and ice shelf impacts? I kind of think that the, the two things are related to each other because the ocean is taking up 90% has taken up something like 90% of the excess heat that there has been in global warming. And so it's all the time it's being distributed uh, throughout the ocean and down to greater depths. In terms of the ice shelves around Antarctica, I think the ocean is going to play a critical role in melting of these ice shelves which will ultimately unplug the ice on the land so that the ice on the land can flow out rapidly into the sea and, and cause sea level rise. So if I had to put my bet on it, I'd probably go for warming of the ocean, but right. Dan, do you want to argue? Let's <laughs> get an atmosphere ocean debate going. No, I, I think I, I agree. And, it, and it, it's kind of, I guess it's a broad question to um, responses that are, would be quite specific. So I think the response of certain areas of the crowd to the atmosphere or the ocean, but I think on the larger scale, if you're going to try and sort of testify to a jury, I think at this stage, the, um, the ocean is certainly going to be playing a bigger role, particularly when it comes to the stability of these ice shelves and ice sheets. But potentially, again, looking forward, um, as the polar atmosphere warms and we start reaching some of these critical thresholds in the future where surface melting does start to play a bigger role. And we're already seeing evidence of that. Yeah. Um, it really, you know, both the ocean and atmosphere could start to play significant roles. And I guess it's one of the reasons why, it, again, why I think sea ice is important. It's a very thin layer, but because it's white, it makes a difference to how much of the heat in the atmosphere gets into the ocean. Um, makes a difference to mm. how reflective the earth is because of its whiteness mm. compared with the dark of the ocean. Interesting. Yeah, and it's all very, it's all a very complicated interaction of different systems because you get all these feedbacks playing in, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to sort of quantify or understand in the present as to how these are going to unfold in the future. Um, for instance, you know, there's some evidence that when, when the ice sheets are melting and all that fresh water is entering the ocean, it's creating a, a sort of film of fresh water at the surface, which fresh water freezes more easily than salt water. Um, which is potentially encouraging the growth of the sea ice. So you're losing ice on a continent, but it could be encouraging growth in the ocean. And there are lots of different feedback mechanisms like that, uh, and also including the atmosphere. As, as we change the temperature of different parts of the planet, 
wind patterns are going to change, which the sea ice is completely responsive to the wind. Um, you know, sea ice can move kilometers and kilometers and kilometers over the ocean every day just from a strong gale blowing. So all these things interact with one another and you end up with some result um, that can be, can be pretty crazy. That's really fascinating. So moving aside from this climate change discussion, I guess the last thing I really want to do is just have a really quick chat about what each of you guys do in your research at the moment um, and what you're involved in. So maybe we'll start with Pat. Well, I've kind of already shown my hand on that. The thing I'm passionate about just now is sea ice thickness. And it seems like such a, such a simple, simple thing to measure. And yet we really can't do it very well at the moment. I'm particularly interested in sea ice thickness where the sea ice is close to an ice shelf. So where the thin sea ice meets the thick ice shelf. And when that happens, you get a process called the ice pump, which takes the ice from the thicker place and moves it up to the thinner place. So sea ice thickness might be thicker than we expect in some places, um, but it could be thinner than we expect in other places. It's a complicated thing. As Dan said, it depends very much on what the wind speeds are, depends where you are, it depends whether you're next to a nice shelf or not. Um, so understanding the processes that condition the sea ice thickness and then being able to measure that sea ice thickness are the things that I really care about. Interesting. And one other episode that we have with Dr. Wolfgang Rack on um, satellites and remote sensing, we actually discussed that as his field of research. So I know you guys have a lot of um, overlap there and you've worked together before. Yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely tune into that episode as well. And just to finish up, Dan, how about you? I know you're just about to head off to the ice, which is super exciting. Yeah, uh, we're currently in quarantine in Christchurch. So we've got to do the two weeks of quarantine before we head down this year. In terms of my research, I guess, to avoid overlapping with Wolfgang too much there. So I do a lot of work with Wolfgang on sea ice thickness and with Pat. Um, but more recently, as I was kind of alluding to, I'm working more with um, land ice stuff. Um, and a lot of the work I've been doing recently has actually been in, involved with crevasse detection. Um, and this is kind of more from an operational sense, I guess. Um, so the work we're doing is... A, a traverse across the Ross ice shelf is about 1200 kilometers and we're supporting um, drilling uh, through the ice shelf like we we're talking about earlier to access the, the cavity underneath um, and in transit across that ice shelf even though it's sort of this big snow covered area the size of Spain in certain areas just because the way the ice interacts um, with other areas of ice you get crevassing so big cracks forming in the surface of the ice but they're hidden by the snow cover um, so what we're trying to do is develop techniques to use satellite um, radar. So it fires a pulse at the Earth's surface, and that pulse actually goes, makes uh, its way quite deep into the snowpack through a few meters, and we can detect the crevasses from space, which is a bit of, bit of a game changer because we don't really want to be driving into these crevassed areas. Um, we could potentially lose a whole vehicle down them, which is obviously a very dangerous thing. So... We're able to generate crevasse maps ahead of time to work out exactly where not to go. Um, and then as a last line of defense on the vehicle, we have uh, like a, uh, what's called a GPR, a ground penetrating radar, which is looking out of out, out the front of the vehicle. 
and we can monitor what's coming ahead of us um, as a last line of defense. So that sort of scientific application of using the satellites and then that last line of defense gives us a pretty good way of um, avoiding those, those dangerous regions on the Ross Island Shelf. And while we're at it, just another wee plug, um, you've actually returned to season two after doing an episode on the Traverse in season one. So yeah, if you're interested, have a listen to that because that's really cool to learn a bit more about your experiences and your time doing that in particular. Well, thank you so much, guys. I really enjoyed um, hosting you today and I hope you had a good time too talking about the field of glaciology and how, you know, you can have these very similar fields, but different focuses and hopefully if one thing people have learned from today is the difference between a nice shelf and a nice sheet and a sea ice (laughs) well done (laughs) thanks so much thank you hope you enjoyed the podcast thanks for taking the time to learn and listen more information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Sinead Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.